Last week, Senator Rand Paul held the first ever congressional hearing on gain-of-function research. Bombshells were revealed. One of the senators in the hearing said, I hope Americans are listening to this. But Americans were not listening because the media ignored it, so hardly anybody even found out about it. As a public service, I want to share with you the whole thing. Senator Rand Paul's first ever congressional hearing on gain-of-function research. How did COVID get started, and what are they researching that's even more dangerous than the China virus? That was on Wednesday, August 3rd, last week. I share it all with you on this edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 212 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I'll never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to mention. So this really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, without any further ado... Let's get right into Senator Rand Paul's first ever Senate subcommittee hearing last August, pardon me, last Wednesday on gain-of-function research. He and three other senators had three doctors on who were witnesses, and man, oh man, oh man, the stuff that they said. I call this meeting of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Spending Oversight to order. I want to thank Senator Hassan for allowing this bipartisan hearing to occur. Welcome to each of our panelists. Thank you for joining us. By the way, he said bipartisan, bipartisan panel, but no Democrats showed up. As Rand Paul and three other Republican senators, most Republican senators didn't show up. The purpose of this hearing by the subcommittee on emerging threats and spending oversight is to discuss, as our name implies, the emerging threat posed by gain-of-function research. We will hear from a panel of three witnesses, all of whom are extraordinarily accomplished experts in the scientific community. We're grateful for their work, and we are grateful to each of you for taking the time to appear with us this afternoon. Gain-of-function research is a controversial scientific research method involving the manipulation of pathogens to give them a new aspect or ability, such as making viruses more transmissible or dangerous to humans. Despite all we've learned about the potential risks of this particular method of research, this is the first congressional hearing on this subject since the pandemic began. 
Today we will discuss what gain-of-function research entails, how gain-of-function research is defined, and whether the definition of gain-of-function research is applied consistently by the Department Health and Human Services P3CO Review Committee. This is a committee that was set up to study potential pandemic pathogens. We will discuss the responsibility for how we determine the risks and benefits. We'll also discuss how this committee operates, how this committee approves or denies projects from receiving federal funding based on whether the pathogen is considered to be a credible source of potential future human pandemic and if the potential risks as compared to the potential benefits to society are justified. In other words, a project is not gain of function if the review committee is unsure if a recombinant virus will create a future pandemic. There's a question of whether or not there's a reasonable expectation that it might be or whether or not it has been in the past or what viruses should be and should not be experimented upon. This broad criteria gives one sole committee, which is comprised of an unknown group of bureaucrats. I believe the names are not released of who's on the committee, so there's, ne- there's not necessarily any oversight of the oversight. The power to spend millions of taxpayer dollars on a single preemptive guess with potentially devastating consequences. Today we will also consider whether gain-of-function research was performed at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. First... No one, not myself or anyone I'm aware of, argues that a recombinant supervirus that has been published in scientific journals is COVID-19 or a close relative. If, and I underline if, COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan lab, it would be a laboratory-created virus that the Wuhan scientists have not yet and are unlikely ever to reveal. I maintain that the techniques that the NIH funded in Wuhan to create enhanced pathogens may have or could have been used to create COVID-19. The American people deserve to know how this pandemic started and to know if the NIH funded research that may have caused this pandemic. Gain-of-function research has the potential to unleash a global pandemic that threatens the lives of millions, yet this is the first time the issue has been discussed in a congressional committee. I'm sure each member of this committee, as well as the full Senate, can agree that we need stronger government oversight of how our tax dollars are being used to finance experimenting with possibly fatal diseases. I mean, just that right there. That right there. Now, again, remember, this is the kind of thing that Fauci has been lying about for two and a half years. But we got the proof. Gain-of-function research is extremely dangerous. And Rand Paul, not only a United States senator, but also a, a medical doctor, conducted the first, the first committee hearing into it just last week. And probably the overwhelming majority of people within the sound of my voice are hearing about this for the first time. Here's more. With that, I'm going to introduce the witnesses, and we'll hear their remarks after the introduction, which is slightly different than we do sometimes, and then I'll introduce the the next witness. The first witness will be with us by uh, Zoom or Skype is Dr. Richard Ebright. 
Dr. Richard Ebright is the Board of Governors Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology and the Director of the Waxman Institute of Microbiology at Rutgers University. Dr. Ebright completed his undergraduate degree from Harvard University in Biology, where he earned summa cum laude honors. He later received a Ph.D. in Microbiology and Molecular Genetics, also from Harvard. Dr. Ebright's research has led to over 175 publications, as well as over 40 issued and pending patents. He has received numerous awards for research and is currently a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as the Institutional Biosafety Committee at Rutgers. He's a fellow of the Infectious Disease Society of America, the American Academy of Microbiology, American Association for Advancement of Science. He was the editor of Molecular Biology for 16 years. Dr. Ebright currently serves as the project leader of three current NIH research grants, provided, has provided testimony to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce on the 2014 anthrax incident, was a founding member of the Cambridge Working Group, whose cautionary statement on gain-of-function research involving potential pandemic pathogens remains as relevant as the day it was released in July 2014. All right, so next... Dr. Ebright, and you, you just heard, you can't get much better credentials than this guy has. Rand Paul just explained. Next, Dr. Ebright himself is going to explain what gain-of-function research is and how important it is to understand this because millions of lives are at stake. Chair Hassan and members of the committee, Thank you for inviting me to discuss gain-of-function research and its oversight. I'm Board of Governors Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Rutgers the State University of New Jersey and Laboratory Director at the Waxman Institute of Microbiology. In my oral statement, I will discuss the definition of gain-of-function research of concern, risks and benefits of the research, U.S. oversight of the research, and steps to strengthen U.S. oversight of the research. What is gain-of-function research of concern? Gain-of-function research of concern is defined as research activities reasonably anticipated to increase a potential pandemic pathogen's transmissibility, pathogenicity, ability to overcome immune response, or ability to overcome a vaccine or drug. Gain-of-function research of concern involves the creation of new health threats, health threats that did not exist previously and that might not come to exist by natural means for tens, hundreds, or thousands of years. Gain-of-function research of concern is a small part of biomedical research. It constitutes less than one-tenth of one percent of biomedical research and less than one percent of virology. However, because gain-of-function research of concern can cause pandemics, this small part is highly consequential and requires effective oversight. I would say so. You hear what he's saying? They are researching pathogens, viruses, whatever, that would not naturally occur and that could kill millions of people. So why are they doing it if these are things that would not occur naturally in nature? This is insane. Is more from Dr. Richard Ebright, a Harvard-trained physician who uh, now teaches at Rutgers. What are the risks? Gain-of-function research of concern poses high, potentially existential risks. Gain-of-function research of concern poses material risks by creating new potential pandemic pathogens. 
if a resulting new potential pandemic pathogen is released into humans, either by accident or deliberately, this can cause a pandemic. Gain-of-function research and concern also poses information risks by providing information on the construction and properties of new potential pandemic pathogens. By the way, an existential risk is any risk that has the potential to eliminate all of humanity or at the very least kill large swaths of the of the global population, leaving the survivors without sufficient means to rebuild society to current standards, standards of living. Just so you know, when he's talking about existential risks, that's what he's talking about. By the way, hat tip to the Future of Life Institute for that uh, definition. Here's more from Dr. Richard Ebright at Rutgers. Publication of the research provides instructions, step-by-step recipes that can enable a rogue nation, organization, or individual to construct a new pathogen and cause a pandemic. What are the benefits? Gain-of-function research of concern provides limited benefits. Gain-of-function research of concern can advance scientific understanding, but gain-of-function research of concern has no civilian practical applications. In particular, gain-of-function research of concern is not needed for and does not contribute to the development of vaccines and drugs. Companies develop vaccines and drugs against pathogens that exist and circulate in humans, not against pathogens that do not yet exist and do not circulate in humans. You get that? But Fauci and his boss, Dr. Francis Collins, recently retired, and all oh, they're ilk. Oh, they're all about it. Oh, this is very important. Oh, we got to keep keep doing this. Really? Well, why? Dr. Richard Ebright, Harvard trained. Teach the Rutgers more on the need for oversight of gain of function research. What should oversight entail? Because gain-of-function research of concern poses high, potentially existential risks and provides limited benefits, the risk-benefit ratio for the research almost always is unfavorable and in many cases is extremely unfavorable. Therefore, it is imperative that gain-of-function research of concern be subject to national or international level oversight to ensure, before the research is started, that risk-benefit ratios are acceptable and risks are mitigated. Can I just say something here? You know... Rand Paul is the closest thing we have in the United States Senate to a libertarian. Rand Paul is the kind of guy who wants to keep the government out of your business, okay? More so than anybody else in the U.S. Senate. He's the most libertarian of the 100 people in the U.S. Senate. And he's saying that this is so dangerous and so fraught with peril that we need more government oversight of this kind of research. I'm just saying, you know, this is not one of those big government liberal Democrats. This is Rand Paul, who's always saying, get the government out of your business. Let that sink in, please. Here's more from Dr. Richard Ebright about the need for oversight. Effective oversight includes three components. First, research proposals that include gain-of-function research of concern must be identified and flagged. Second, a risk-benefit assessment must be performed. This entails enumerating risks and benefits, weighing risks and benefits, and reaching a decision, either to proceed as proposed or to proceed with additional risk mitigation or not to proceed. Third, compliance with the decision from the risk-benefit assessment must be mandated, monitored, and enforced. I turn now to U.S. oversight of -of gain-of-function research of concern. 
Before 2014, there was no national-level U.S. oversight of -of gain-of-function research of concern. In 2014 to 2017, the government put in place a moratorium on federal funding for, quote, selected gain-of-function research, end quote, defined as research activities reasonably anticipated to increase the transmissibility or pathogenicity of influenza, SARS, or MERS viruses. The policy was referred to as the PAUSE. Under the PAUSE, 18 projects were paused. However, at least seven of the 18 projects that were paused were allowed to resume almost immediately. Now, remember, COVID-19 is a SARS-type virus. More important, other projects that met the definition for coverage, including a project on SARS-related coronaviruses by EcoHealth Alliance and its Wuhan-based partners, were not paused due to the failure of the NIH to identify and flag all covered projects. At the end of 2017, the pause was lifted and was replaced by an HHS policy that requires risk-benefit assessment before awarding HHS funding for, quote, research involving enhanced potential pandemic pathogens, end quote, defined as research activities reasonably anticipated to increase the transmissibility or pathogenicity of a potential pandemic pathogen. Now, you notice he said he was talking about the government ordering this kind of research to be paused, but that the coronavirus, SARS coronavirus research in Wuhan that we were funding was not paused because the NIAID, that's Fauci's organization, he's been in charge of it since Reagan appointed him in the mid-'80s, uh, didn't identify it as qualifying for the pause. And this takes me back. This takes me back to something I learned from an attorney named Joe Churchwell out of Hot Springs, Arkansas, a long time ago. He says, you know, uh, our legislature passes laws on what the government is allowed to do and not allowed to do. But if the government breaks the law governing what it's supposed to do or not to do, what is the remedy? Okay. The federal government is the same way. They pass all kinds of laws about what they are supposed to do and not supposed to do. Laws. But is anybody ever held criminally liable for breaking those laws? Not much. Fauci still got his job, right? Highest paid federal government employee in the whole country. Here's more from Dr. Ebright. The policy is referred to as the P3CO framework. Under the P3CO framework, cover projects must be identified and flagged by the funding agency, the NIH, and cover projects must be reviewed by an HHS secretary-level committee, the P3CO committee. The P3CO framework assesses the reasonably anticipated results of the proposed research. The reasonably anticipated standard employed in the policy is equivalent in all respects to the reasonable person standard employed in U.S. administrative law and U.S. civil law. In principle, the P3CO framework ensures risk-benefit assessment of -of gain-of-function research of concern. However, in practice, the P3CO framework has existed primarily on paper. In the four and a half years since the policy was announced, only three projects have been reviewed. Most cover projects, including the project by EcoHealth Alliance and its Wuhan partners, were not reviewed due to a failure by the NIH to identify and flag cover projects. In other words, the NIH ignored the law. 
In addition, the P3CO committee has been non-transparent and unaccountable. The names and agency affiliations of its members have not been disclosed. Its proceedings have not been disclosed, and even its decisions have not been disclosed. Current U.S. oversight of gain-of-function research are concerned, thus has serious shortcomings. Moving forward, any effective system of U.S. oversight of gain-of-function research are concerned must address these shortcomings. My recommendations are as follows. First, Responsibility for U.S. oversight of -of gain-of-function research or concern should be assigned to a single independent federal agency that does not perform research and does not fund research. Second, U.S. oversight of -of gain-of-function research or concern should cover all U.S. and U.S.-funded research, irrespective of funding source, classification status, and research location. Third, U.S. oversight of gain and function research and concern should be codified in regulations with force of law and should be mandated, monitored, and enforced. And fourth, U.S. oversight of gain and function research and concern should be transparent and accountable. Thank you for your attention, and I would be pleased to address questions. Do you get that? Should be codified with the force of law. See, that's what they don't have right now. NIH and Fauci's subsidiary agency, the NIAID, are ignoring, ignoring the regulations. They don't have the force of law. All right, uh, Rand Paul introduces the uh, the next witness, Dr. Quay. Next, we'll have Dr. Stephen Quay. Dr. Stephen Quay is the founder and chairman of the Seattle-based Atosa Therapeutics. Atosa Therapeutics is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that develops novel therapeutics and delivery methods for breast cancer and other breast conditions with the goal of preventing the 2 million yearly breast cancer cases worldwide. Earlier in his career, Dr. Quay received his MD and PhD from the University of Michigan, trained as a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and served on the faculty of Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Quay published contributions to the world of medicine, uh, have been cited extensively, and he is a medical entrepreneur. He has founded six startups, invented seven FDA-approved pharmaceuticals, and is the holder of 87 patents and over 130 pending U.S. and foreign patent applications. He's also an author. Notably, during the pandemic, Dr. Quay published his number one Amazon bestseller, Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. Finally, Dr. Quay recently presented testimony to lawmakers as a part of an export forum convened by the House Select Committee on Coronavirus titled Led by Science, the COVID-19 origin story. Dr. Quay? Sounds like a real guy. Okay, here's Dr. Quay. I offer six statements in opening. One, there is no dispositive evidence the pandemic began as a spillover of a natural virus in a market. All evidence is consistent with a laboratory-acquired infection. I do understand this conclusion is not widely held. And I could spend an entire hearing painstakingly going through the scientific evidence for this conclusion, but that's not the purpose of today's meeting. By the way, I always forget what that word means, dispositive. It's uh, The definition is relating to or bringing about the settlement of an issue or the disposition of property. So dispositive means if this guy thinks this, but that guy thinks that, and the two things they think disagree, somebody comes along and says, okay, here's the real deal. Okay? That's dispositive. In other words, he either says you're right and you're wrong, or... You're wrong and you're right, or you're both wrong because here's the truth. 
but dispositive means evidence that settles the issue. I'm happy to discuss the evidence contained in my written remarks during questioning. I'm also willing to publicly debate any virologist on this question at any time or place. Only one infectious disease doctor was willing to debate this question with me last year in a formal debate format, and he lost. I'm also willing to testify under oath if requested. Number two, all evidence is consistent with an accidental and not a deliberate release. Number three, SARS-2 has features consistent with synthetic biology gain-of-function research. Two features involve acceptable academic gain-of-function research, the receptor binding domain optimization and the furin cleavage site. These two features have never been found in nature in related viruses that could have reasonably started the pandemic because of their closeness of these viruses to Wuhan. These two features are, on the other hand, routinely engineered into viruses. In 2018, U.S. and WIV scientists proposed inserting, quote, human-specific furin cleavage sites in a bat virus backbone. Two years later, SARS-2 appeared on the WIV doorstep. SARS-2 is a bat-derived virus with a human-specific furin cleavage site. One region of SARS-2 called ORF-8 has features of forbidden gain-of-function research, asymptomatic transmission, and immune system evasion. The WIV was engineering a protein uh, related to ORF-8 to have these two forbidden properties before 2019, as shown in two master's degree thesis available only in Chinese. COVID exhibits 40% asymptomatic transmission unheard of for a new respiratory virus. Patients infected with an acquired deletion of ORF-8 have a milder infection. Could the reduced efficacy of vaccines and natural immunity be an engineered feature? It appears likely. All right. Um, I'm going to try to give you definitions whenever I can to kind of keep everybody moving along with this. Uh, the whole thing, idea about furin, cleavage sites, F-U-R-I-N. Uh, it's going to be a tough one. I'll give you the definition. Maybe you understand it. I don't. But there's so much powerful information in this hearing. I hope you'll stick with it. Furin is a protease, a proteolytic enzyme that in humans and other animals is encoded with the furin gene. Some proteins are inactive when they are first synthesized and must have sections removed in order to become active. Furin cleaves these sections and activates the proteins. It was named furin because it was in the upstream re- region of an oncogene known as FES, and it just goes on from there. So I, I don't think that's the important part here, though. Seriously. They've already talked about the fact that Fauci and his buddies that he was funding in Wuhan were ignoring any kind of oversight. And this is this is very, very, very dangerous. Anybody can understand that without understanding what a furin protease is. Here's more from Dr. Quay. Six. In December 2019, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was conducting synthetic biology research on the Nipah virus, which is 60% lethal in low-containment BLSA-2-3 facilities. 
The Nipah virus was in an infectious clone format. Nipah is a BLSA-4 level pathogen and a CDC-designated bioterrorism agent. This is the most dangerous gain-of-function research I have ever encountered. We should assume this research continues to this day at the WIV. All right, so that is uh, Dr. Quay, his opening six statements. And now we've got Dr. Stephen Quay and his recommendations. I'll close with five recommendations for future gain-of-function research. Where did the pandemic begin? The competing hypotheses are a natural spillover at the Hunan Seafood Market in Wuhan and a laboratory-acquired infection. Two recent papers purport to claim the pandemic began at the Hunan market in December 2019. There are at least six serious problems with these papers. The most important are that in the early months, no animal has ever been found to be infected with COVID-19 anywhere, including the market, and the molecular clock of SARS-2 places the first human infection in the fall of 2019, long before the December market cases. And all infections in the market in humans were what's called lineage B and not the most ancestral lineage, lineage A. I, like many other scientists, believe the market cases were a super spreader event. Uh, This first chart uh, here, the earliest cluster of hospitalized patients with both the lineage A and B virus was at the People's Liberation Army Hospital in Wuhan. This hospital is about six kilometers from the WIV and on line two of the Wuhan subway system, as shown in this chart. All early cases are in hospitals adjacent to line two, and the probability this was a chance occurrence is one in 68,000. The line 2 COVID conduit, as I called it, includes the PLA hospital, the WIV, the market, and the international airport. They're all right there together. The possibility of this being a chance occurrence is 1 in 68,000. I think that's kind of low, you know? You can literally walk down into the subway system from the WIV in China and next exit outside in London, Paris, Dubai, Los Angeles, or New York, all before having any symptoms. Modeling by others suggests that the pandemic could not have occurred without the international spreading impact of Line 2. Has gain-of-function research been useful to the COVID response or any other public health infectious disease emergency? I have found no evidence that gain-of-function research helped in either the COVID pandemic or other smaller epidemics. We now know that an MRI vaccine can be designed within literally days of a new outbreak once the pathogen is sequenced, and large-scale manufacturing can begin soon thereafter. This capability has now been fully road-tested and provides, in my opinion, the best defensive capability against future microbes. It's also important to point out that gain-of-function research is a tiny sliver of all research funded by NIH. Specifically, there were over 36,000 R01 grants funded by NIH in 2020, the latest year with statistics. Of these, the self-described gain-of-function on potential pathogens research grants numbered only 21 in the latest funding year. Even expanding this by tenfold with a less stringent definition of -of gain-of-function would mean we are talking about less than 1% of all NIH research funding. I cannot imagine a scenario where but for this tiny research effort, a new pandemic occurs. What reforms should be considered in order to assure that such research is conducted in a safe and transparent manner? While I found no actual benefit of -of gain-of-function research, I believe efforts to ban it, given the vested interests of literally the entire virology community, is a hill too steep to climb. A proposal that I believe is achievable is the placement of all select agent research within the existing institutional review board structure used for human clinical trials. 
I believe that this effort would put guardrails around the most dangerous aspects of this research and has the added benefit of international acceptance, including in China. Guardrails. You know, it's just so crazy in my work. My second reform would be to separate government oversight from the funding agency, um, and the model would be the Atomic Energy Commission. Third suggestion is to place Western biotechnology equipment under export controls and monitoring. There are ways to build into these systems a forensic and law enforcement capability that could, for example, with probable cause and a search warrant, allow the work of any lab in the world to be scrutinized remotely. My fourth recommendation is simple. Don't put dangerous infectious disease laboratories near subways like Line 2, where every major city in the world is accessible within the incubation period of an infection. Yeah, isn't that insane when you think about it? Finally, including what I call going of opportunity research, going into caves where humans are seldom found, taking a bat fecal sample containing thousands of viruses, bringing those viruses back to a laboratory and culturing the specimens where a virus might be controlled in a diverse natural environment, is now able to grow unrestricted in pure culture, provides an immense increased potential risk, a gain of opportunity for the virus. Yeah, why, why would anybody do that? But that's what Fauci says is a great idea. Why would anybody do that? That's nuts, man. That's nuts. Here's more. This is the goal of the Global Virome Project, a Gates Foundation-funded EcoHealth Alliance-associated effort. Their stated goal, collect the estimated 500,000 unknown viruses that are capable of infecting humans and bring them back to a laboratory near you. What could go wrong? Did I have the last slide here? What happens if we have these hearings and nothing happens? In December 2019, we performed a remote audit, forensic examination of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and found synthetic biology experiments with the Nipah virus. As the chart shows, they had created a cloning vector with a virus the U.S. CDC defines as bioterrorism agent. Nipah virus is one of the deadliest on the planet with a greater than 60% lethality. Why were they conducting this experiment? I do not know. But a laboratory-acquired infection with this virus, if it became airborne, would make COVID-19 look like a walk in the park. The work of this committee is critical to protecting the American people as well as the people of all countries from future pandemics, man-made or natural. If we now fail to act with the knowledge we have... History will judge us poorly. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's an understatement. If we don't do something about this. Uh, history will judge us poorly. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I think you're onto something there. That's an understatement. All right. Next, Rand Paul is going to introduce Doctor uh, Kevin Elsfeld, the um, third and final witness. Thank you, Dr. Quay. Our final witness is Dr. Kevin Esfeld. He's currently an assistant professor at the MIT Media Lab Group, where he leads the Sculpting Evolution Group. Dr. Esfeld received his BA in chemistry and biology from Harvey Mudd College and would later complete his PhD in biochemistry at Harvard University as a Hertz Fellow. While working in the laboratory of David Liu at Harvard University, Dr. Esfeld invented Phage Assisted Continuous Evolution, or PACE, which is synthetic microbial ecosystem for rapidly evolving biomolecules. Later, during his time as a WIS technology fellow, uh, Esfeld's focus centered around the development of gene drive technology. Many of Esfeld's contributions related to the 
bioethics and biosafety of such gene drivers, and he's credited as the first to describe how CRISPR gene drives could be used to alter the traits of wild populations in an evolutionary stable manner. In his recent work at the Sculpting Evolution Group, Dr. Esfelt and his colleagues invented the new technology known as daisy drives, which would let communities aiming to prevent disease alter wild organisms in local ecosystems. Throughout his career, Dr. Esfelt has been a champion of universal safeguards, transparency, raising scientific awareness of developing early warning systems to reliably detect any catastrophic biological threat, and advising policymakers on how to best mitigate global catastrophic bio-risk. That sounds like a real guy. All right, let's hear the opening statement from Dr. Kevin Esfeld then. I have to say that I have no special insights regarding the origins of COVID. In fact, I kind of doubt there's sufficient evidence to be conclusive in one way or the other. But our model suggests that knowing where it came from wouldn't actually help us defend against future pandemics. Oh, boy. I agreed to speak to a bipartisan hearing today because this is the Emerging Threats Subcommittee. And I'm increasingly concerned by our continuing failure to recognize an increasingly dire technological threat. Leo Szilard, who invented the nuclear chain reaction and launched the modern nonproliferation movement, is a scientific hero of mine. And he wrote, the most important step in getting a job done is the recognition of the problem. The problem isn't our inability to agree on what does or does not constitute gain-of-function research, or even whether the putative benefits of this research outweigh the risks of accidents. Rather, the problem is that we are so used to thinking of pandemics as a health and safety issue that we've missed the national security implications of identifying viruses that could be deliberately unleashed to kill millions of people. This right here, this issue, this point he's making, I think is the most important point in this whole hearing. And he's just getting started. Please pay attention to this. Let me illustrate. When the genome of SARS-2 was first posted online, scientists didn't have to wait for physical samples of the virus to become available to begin studying it and working on countermeasures. That's because we could order synthetic DNA corresponding to the genome of the pathogen and assemble infectious samples using freely available step-by-step protocols. From a biomedical perspective, that is a triumph, particularly because it only costs a few thousand dollars and the price is plummeting. But from a security perspective, that means that thousands of researchers could gain access to a novel pandemic agent as soon as it was identified as such. Okay, now, think about that. Thousands of researchers could gain access to this novel, dangerous virus as soon as they figure out what it is and put the info online, right? So what if one or more of those researchers are people who believe that, uh, oh, I don't know, I don't know, 
They got some kind of holy book that says they're supposed to kill the infidels. Huh? What if, what if what if that's a situation? Call me crazy. I've been called worse, but um, you would think that would occur to somebody in the medical research community, right? Like maybe this is some stuff we shouldn't be sharing with just every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the world. But apparently that did not occur to anybody. Here's more from Dr. Kevin Esfeld. Thankfully, we still don't know of any particularly concerning examples, that is, agents that would likely cause a pandemic if they were to be released, even at multiple sites. If we did know, then the modern-day equivalent of a terrorist like C. Chi Endo, who is a graduate-trained virologist and doomsday cultist who sought samples of Ebola and used chemical weapons to commit mass murder, might have well assembled them and released them in airports by now. So why do the medical researchers want to put everything, as great philosopher Boz Skaggs would say, put your business in the street? When it's obvious people like that exist in this world. But if you work in public health and infectious disease, you naturally want to know what the next threat might be so that you can better prepare defenses. That makes sense. And that is why both USAID and NIH have funded research attempting to find or create novel pandemic-capable viruses in labs all over the world. Now, we disagree on whether some of those experiments might fall into an arbitrarily defined category called gain-of-function research. We biologists disagree over what a species is. Did you know that a tiger and a lion can interbreed? But what nobody disputes is that in the hope of preventing natural pandemics, both agencies seek to identify viruses that could kill as many people as a nuclear weapon to alert the entire world to what they find and to publicly sharing the complete genome sequences of those viruses so that skilled scientists everywhere will be able to make infectious samples. That's insane. That's insane. But wait, there's more. The tragedy is that these are health experts, well-meaning health experts who have dedicated their lives to fighting infectious disease. And they struggle to imagine anyone evil enough to deliberately cause one. So they never considered that these advances in technology, which are continuing, plus a list of pandemic-capable viruses, would allow a single skilled terrorist to unleash more pandemics at once than would naturally occur in a century. And no one warned them, perhaps because, as has been previously noted, they lack independent security oversight of their work. Now, it's always possible that we could save more lives by helping to prevent natural pandemics than we would lose due to deliberate acts of terrorism. But according to our numerical cost-benefit model, it's not even close, even for the best-case scenario. The reason is there's so many viruses in nature, most of which will never encounter a human. The lowest published estimate suggests that for every pandemic virus that does spill over, 
in a century, there's a hundred that will never encounter a human. That means if you identify one at random, even if we could perfectly prevent it from spilling over and causing a pandemic, that one virus, then we have a one in a hundred chance of actually preventing a pandemic. But if there's just a 1% chance of deliberate misuse per year, then in that same time period, we can expect to cause a pandemic. Wow. In other words, pandemic virus identification, whether it's created in the lab or whether it's just identified in the wild, is expected to kill 100 times as many people as it would save. Oh, my. For 75 years, the United States successfully kept nuclear weapons out of the hands of terrorists. In the wake of a pandemic that has killed more people than could any thermonuclear explosion, it's time to start doing the same for pandemic viruses. For starters, Congress could study an issue, study the issue and release a finding on whether pandemic virus identification endangers national security. It's just that simple. Then, if necessary, reform USAID and NIH research. It could require an oversight committee of experts from security agencies to review all requests for proposals in the life sciences. It could update the federal select agent program to automatically regulate viruses at the first sign of pandemic capability, because these are the most dangerous agents out there. It could require all DNA synthesis orders to be screened for hazards. And perhaps most important, Congress could legislate catastrophe liability. That is, liability for human-caused events that result in more than a million American casualties, as SARS-2 has and require general liability insurance to cover it. That would induce the market to price in the cost of negative externalities and cause professional insurance risk analysts to perform those cost-benefit analyses. Now, I'm optimistic about this issue because we just need to buy time. If we can keep pandemic-capable viruses out of the hands of terrorists for a decade, then we can deploy new general-purpose defensive technologies. These range from ubiquitous sequencing that can detect any emerging threat to perfect protective equipment for our essential workers to low-wavelength germicidal lights. And these together could protect us from all pandemics, whether natural, accidental, or deliberate. Pandemic proliferation is a solvable national security problem, but only if we recognize it as one. Wow. I mean, he just blew blew the roof off the place. I mean that 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 is a lot to try to process. Now, next, we have um, the junior senator from Florida, Rick Scott, with a question for Doctor Esfeld. Doctor Esfeld, in your testimony, you talk about USAID funding gain of function experiments through Deep VZN, the program which specifically conducts experiments geared toward pandemics in virology and stop spillover, which, as you know, researches spillover between animals and humans. Can you talk about what these programs specifically are and why they may be dangerous? All right. Good question. Here's Dr. Esfeld's answer. Deep Vision and Stop Spillover are extensions of USAID's long-running PREDICT program, the goal of which was to predict pandemics, that is, to identify viruses in the wild that had a good chance of spilling over and causing a pandemic in humans. And this, has, this is part of the laudable One Health program, which seeks to identify essentially hotspots where viruses are likely to spill over into humans and cause a pandemic. The idea is if we find these hotspots, educate the community, 
teach them what to do in the event of an outbreak, then we might be able to stop it before it reaches our shores. That makes sense. But again, they don't seem to have thought of the security issues associated with publishing a list of pandemic-capable viruses by threat order. Now, we can't necessarily know whether a given pandemic would take off until it's spreading in humans, but there's a narrow set of laboratory experiments that can tell us, does it look like a human endemic virus in certain traits? And these are a tiny subset of all experiments that really aren't very useful for anything else. They don't help with therapeutic development. So part of PREDICT was to take samples of these viruses, bring them back to the lab, run these kinds of experiments, sequence the genomes, share them. They didn't find anything particularly scary, but they found some candidates that looked fairly nasty, including at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it's hard to know what USAID did and did not approve, but they are listed as an acknowledgement, as is NIH, on a paper that recombined those dangerous-looking but definitely not pandemic-capable viruses and then performed experiments to see, did they look like they could plausibly cause pandemics? Wow. Okay, um, Senator Rick Scott of Florida has some follow-up questions uh, for Dr. Kevin Esfeld. But first, let me just mention, and this is the furthest we've ever gone to the show without getting to our, our friends, our sponsors. We appreciate them so much for making it possible for us to do what we do Five shows a week. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it without these guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including... Your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. 
Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines? Neck pain? Back pain? Vertigo? Acid reflux? Eczema? Problems with your blood sugar? Maybe even hay fever? Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system, and yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. And thank you so much to our friends, our advertisers, Doctors J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, my doctors. Also, of course, at Edward Jones, Jonathan Presswood, financial advisor, and our buddy Mitch Ward at RedRiverYourWay.com. All right. Um, so, Senator Rick Scott, junior senator, state of Florida, is intrigued and has more questions. Um, for Dr. Kev, uh, Kevin Esfeld, and, and it's, it's remarkable these people can keep their composure when they're talking about people with an ungodly amount of power putting millions, perhaps tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of lives at risk. It's just remarkable. So do you think these programs are dangerous? 
I think any program attempting to identify an agent that would be widely accessible and could be deliberately released to kill millions of people is pretty much the definition of dangerous, yes. Do you think the USAID, whose main job is to provide humanitarian aid globally, has the oversight for programs and experiments like Stop Spillover and Deep VZN, which are not humanitarian in nature? I think there's a very strong humanitarian case for preventing pandemics. I think that the absence of security oversight means that USAID was probably just not aware of the security consequences of their work. And it remains to be seen whether they will decide that it is inadvisable to maintain a ranked order list of the most threatening viruses. Okay, look, I get it that we all have blind spots, but that's just one that is incomprehensible to me. Just put a ranked list of the most dangerous viruses out there and just hope that the bad guys don't say, hey, here's how we could kill a bunch of people, right? I mean, that's just incomprehensible. Rick Scott has more for Dr. Esfeld. So do you, do you think they have the oversight ability to, to handle this job? It's unclear exactly who they're seeking advice from. Uh, my understanding is that they are seeking advice from folks with greater security expertise. And the real question is what actions are going to come of that? So would these programs go through a P3CO review? My understanding is that federally funded research does go through P3CO review. However, it is unclear whether the basic Find the Pathogens program would go through such review because until you find it and at least run some characterization to determine whether or not it looks like a pandemic virus, it would not necessarily be regulated. And as previously mentioned, due to the transparency issues with that committee, it's very much unclear what their remit is and is not. Hmm. You know, um, since no Democrat senators even came to this thing, I mean, look, I, uh, I did a little bit of research. Uh, Jesse Kelly of Fox News. Gosh, what did I always say, Jesse Kelly? Jesse Waters of Fox News. Jesse Kelly's on the radio. Jesse Waters on Fox News. Jesse Waters of Fox News uh, interviewed Rand Paul about this. Newsmax did some stuff about it. Um, I happen to live in Little Rock, Arkansas. None of the television stations, none of the TV news outlets in Little Rock, Arkansas, are aware this even happened. And the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in Little Rock, Arkansas, biggest newspaper in the state, is unaware that it happened. Okay, another question from Rick Scott. Do you know who's on the panel for piece three, three COs? I do not. Why, why wouldn't, is it not public? My understanding is it, isn't, is it is not public. Why wouldn't it be public? That is an excellent question. So you, do any of the witnesses know why it wouldn't be public? No. Is it part of the, I know it isn't public, and I don't know why it is it, it's not. So it's part of our federal government, right? Correct. And so well, what, do they think Americans are not smart enough to understand it? You'll have to ask the people at NIH. Do you know how they made the decision not to make it the names public? No. Okay. So for each of you, do you think that the P3CO review is comprehensive enough on NIH grants, or do you think gain-of-function grants have been approved without a P3CO review? Ah, that's an important question. So at this point, Rand Paul jumps in and redirects the question, because Rick Scott said to each of you, Rand Paul wants to 
take it straight to Dr. Ebright. Let's go to Dr. Ebright. So I want to leave him out of the, and we'll go through each of you. Dr. Ebright, would you like to respond to that? Yes. So uh, as I mentioned in my uh, summary statement, there have been only three P3CO reviews in the four and a half years that the P3CO framework has been in effect. The majority of gain of function research of concern, enhanced potential pandemic pathogen research supported by NIH has not undergone P3CO review. It has not undergone P3CO review for the simple reason that the NIH has not identified and flagged the proposals as subject to P3CO review and has not forwarded the proposals for P3CO review. So there's no accountability here. The NIH or or uh, Fauci's agency under the NIH, NIAID, they can do whatever they want, is, is, is the distinct impression we're getting here, including gain function research, which is terribly dangerous, so dangerous that Fauci keeps on denying they're funding it, even though they are. Okay, Rand Paul directs the question to the other two now. When we ask the other two to respond as well. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, just echoing uh, Dr. Ebright, it's it's been a failure I think at this point in time, and so we need to find an alternative, which is perhaps to take it out of the NIH, uh, make the oversight outside of the agency that's funding. One major problem is that gain of function is a terrible term. It applies to most of biotechnology in the raw, and you can try to add qualifiers as you want. But it also inherently does not catch efforts to identify perfectly natural but nevertheless highly lethal pandemic-capable viruses. And it really doesn't matter where the thing comes from. What matters is, do you know that there is a good chance that it causes a pandemic? And again, maybe you don't think we can ever be confident more than, say, 50% for a given virus. But if you get a list of eight viruses that you're 50% confident, it's possible to make all eight, let them go, and you have got pretty good odds there. So... I am concerned by efforts to continue to focus on gain of function because it is so ill-defined and it seems more productive to narrow in on the classes of experiments that can substantially increase our confidence that a virus is pandemic capable wherever it comes from. And I certainly echo the calls for external security oversight. Yeah. Just so crazy it might work. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Okay, go back to uh, uh, Florida Senator uh, Rick Scott for more questions and answers on uh, on oversight. You think there's appropriate oversight of existing research after it's been approved to ensure continuous compliance? Or do we I would say there is not. Uh, importantly, the P3CO framework does not mandate compliance. If the P3CO committee makes a decision that the research may not proceed, that decision is only advisory to the funding agency. It is not mandated for the funding agency. The funding agency is free to accept or not accept the decision and is free to determine whether to monitor or not to monitor the progress of the work. This is a major shortcoming. Again, this guy's going for Nobel Prize for understatement. Yeah, yeah, major shortcoming. Oh, uh, yeah. I wish there were stronger words. This is insane. I mean, they may as well be shouting at clouds. Because guys like Fauci are not going to accept any oversight. And the thing is structured so that there's no enforcement. 
Okay, uh, Rand Paul. I just want to interject on the definition, whether gain of function is a good definition or not. That began with the NIH. They gave us a definition, and we started with that. And so I do think Dr. Esfeld's making some good points that it, we ought to, ought to be concerned with viruses that are not created, but they actually come from nature that could cause pandemics. So it's, it, 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 I think that's part of this discussion is to try to figure out where we get to. Yeah. It should be part of this discussion, that's for sure. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, Wisconsin. Um, he's the guy who had Dr. Pierre Corey in front of his committee um, in December of 2020. It's the first time I ever heard of ivermectin. And... Um, the committee hearing was a couple of days before I was going to fill in for Mark Levin on nationally syndicated talk radio, and I uh, I publicized that at the time, and I hope it helps some people. Okay, so Ron Johnson wants to know, uh, in the words of the uh, old classic rock song from the 70s, how long has this been going on? How long have we had gain-of-function capabilities? Is that Mr. Esfeld? Well, I should probably defer to Dr. Ebright on yeah, that. Dr. Ebright, how long have we even had this capability? The discussions have been underway since 2002 and 2003. Uh, the first examples involved reconstruction of previously eradicated or extinct pathogens. Uh, those presented a prototype for understanding experiments that would create new health threats and the need to address them. And again, we're talking a two-decade-long discussion. Good grief. They've been talking about this for 20 years and nobody's done anything about it? Is that is that what I'm to understand here? Okay, more uh, back and forth with uh, Ron Johnson and uh, one or more of the doctors. But again, the technology emerged or they started discussing and then developed the technology. What The discussions occurred as the technology emerged. It became possible to do this effectively starting uh, at the beginning of the millennium. The technologies have uh, increased in sophistication and have increased in ease and decreased in cost over time. Yes, talk about the ease and the cost uh, because I've heard it is very accessible now and it's very cheap and you can basically, you know, a knowledgeable individual can basically do this in their garage. And that's an exaggeration, but as Dr. Esfeld has pointed out, given the genome sequence of a virus, it is typically possible to reconstruct infectious particles of the virus and to do so for costs well under $10,000 U.S. in one person month or two person months. So for an equipped laboratory, the kind of laboratory that would be present in any state program and that is present in many research laboratories at academic institutions, this is eminently possible. Good grief. I, 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 I hope they can do something about this. Here's, I mean, the next comment, there are way too many people who are able to create a virus. So, again, reconstructing a virus is one thing, but my understanding, what the least theory might be with SARS-CoV-2 is there's gene splicing that occurred here and, and some very unusual markers in this furin cleavage site, and it would be on my comprehension exactly what that means. But talk to me a little bit about the, the whole gene splicing aspect of this. 
So there's two ways to edit a virus. Nowadays, the easiest way is usually to assemble it from scratch using synthetic DNA. But if it's large, then in some cases, it's better to create the altered piece that you wish to insert into the virus and then use a tool such as CRISPR to do the insertion into the backbone. With respect to the cost, the first virus with a chemically synthesized genome from synthetic DNA was made in 2002. Since then, the cost of gene synthesis has fallen by roughly a thousandfold. So today, the cost of ordering the components of an infectious influenza virus, for example, the synthetic DNA costs less than $1,000. And that does not require any further editing. That just requires following the reverse genetics protocol, transfecting it into the cells to get the infectious virus. And I estimate that there are around 30,000 people who can do that who have doctorates. And you can say 125 virology PhDs per year in the United States. That's roughly one-third in the world. It's probably four times as many people who have degrees in other disciplines, such as mine, who can do it. Assume a 20-year career, and that's 30,000 people at a few technicians. Yeah, that's that's nuts. So let's just give every one of them the list of the most dangerous viruses and the uh, ability to make them and just uh, let them go and kill a bunch of people. That's, that's crazy. Senator Ron Johnson wants to know what led to the pause in the gain-of-function research mandated by the Obama administration. Now, now, check this. Think about it. It was the Obama administration that said, okay, now, wait a minute. This sounds too dangerous. Was there a specific incidence or something that uh, concerned people that caused the pause? <laughs> yes, there was experiments in influenza in the Netherlands and Wisconsin uh, that took a, a virus that was 90% lethal but not airborne and uh, created it, uh, made it airborne through uh, passage in the laboratory. And that, that occurred when? Uh, 2013, 2012. That caught the attention of who? I mean, who, who was alarmed by that and instituted the pause? I know it occurred under President Obama, but which member of our health agencies that? Uh, yeah, I think I think Dr. Ebright would be the best to answer that. Dr. Ebright. So, so the the possible impetus for the pause was a series of events, laboratory accidents at federal laboratories that have uh, access to and storage of. Uh, potential pandemic pathogens. The accidents included an anthrax incident at the CDC, uh, another anthrax incident at a U.S. Army facility at Dugway in Utah, and uh, the finding of uh, unsecured vials labeled smallpox virus in an FDA NIH freezer in Maryland. And those three incidents occurring in close succession resulted in a hearing in the House Energy and Commerce Committee and then action by the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. So the pause was driven ultimately from the White House, from the Obama Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. It sounds like they had a good reason to want to pause it, but the, the idea that there was no uh, enforcement mechanism uh, made it... Uh, Futile, if I may. Ron Johnson, more. Listening to your testimony, I'm assuming all three of you would agree with this statement that this research, and I would say even the the mining of dangerous potential pathogens, you know, go go crawl in a bat cave to try and pull these things out and bring them to a lab. There's certainly no benefit that 
overrides the risk. We shouldn't be doing this at all. Yeah, I call it gain of function and gain of opportunity where you bring a virus back. Uh, and as I said, my analysis is that it hasn't contributed to the response to this pandemic. So we shouldn't do it. I mean, we shouldn't be, you're, you're, we can talk about controls, but bottom line, we shouldn't have controls because so we shouldn't even do it. Is that your position as well? For balancing the potential benefits of prevention against the risk of accidents, it can go either way depending on the numbers you use for those. You can reasonably come out with either answer. When you add the misuse case, that is what absolutely blows it out of the water. Sure does. Sure does. I kind of wish somebody would do something about this. What, what, what about you? Do you think that'd be a good idea? Dr. Ebrahim? I believe a strong case can be made, or a case can be made, that certain components of gain of function research of concern particularly components involving pathogens that are currently in human populations are categorically separate and more justifiable than other components of -of gain-of-function research of concern. For example, currently SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID, is present in millions of humans and is generating variant after variant. Gain-of-function research of concern on SARS-CoV-2 involving the creation of new variants and analysis of the threat posed by them uh, arguably can be justified because this is not creating new health threats that won't arise without intervention, but is addressing a health threat that's in place currently. For that reason and for reasons like that, I believe enhancing the oversight of the research is a more effective and more prudent strategy than simply banning it. I would say improve oversight, but would you also agree dramatically limit it? Absolutely. (laughs) There you go. It's amazing sometimes the semantics. Well, improving the oversight would be better than banning it. Okay, what about improving the oversight and dramatically limiting it? Oh, well, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, okay. A distinction, I hope, without a difference. Okay, uh, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, who's also a medical doctor out of Kansas, jumps in. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I hope America is listening today. See, that's the thing. America was not listening because they didn't even know about it. Nobody told them about it. And that's heartbreaking. All right. And to our witnesses, let me say welcome, and I regret that none of you were able to get into the Kansas State University biochemistry program, Uh, but I certainly appreciate your credentials that are all here today. I think it's important to not only identify the true problem, but also talk about where we've been, and you all can help us fill in some of the pieces here when we talk about gain-of-function research It was late in 2011 when the NSABB, which is the NIH's advisory board, stopped two scientists from publishing an influenza gain-of-function study that I believe Dr. Ebright was referring to. And they stopped it because they were afraid it could educate bioterrorists. So this is 2011. Over a decade ago, scientists had figured out how to make H5N1, which is highly pathogenic avian influences, more contagious. In 2012, those two scientists and 39 others implemented a voluntary gain-of-function research pause on influenza experiments. In early 2012, Dr. Fauci 
encouraged all influenza scientists to pause gain of function and said, and I'm quoting Dr. Fauci, 2012, it's essential we respect the concern of the public domestically or globally and not ask them to take the word of the influenza scientists. It's interesting to me that Dr. Fauci was focused on the messaging, but he still wanted to continue the gain-of-function research. Again in 2012, Dr. Fauci also said almost prophetically that he worried about unregulated laboratories, perhaps outside of the United States, doing work sloppily and leading to an inadvertent pandemic. And he went on to say the accidental release is what the world is really worried about. Ah... That's what Fauci used to say. He doesn't want anybody going back and reminding him of that, does he? Okay, Roger Marshall, medical doctor and U.S. Senator from Kansas, with more on Fauci and gain-of-function research. I go forward to 2014 now after biosecurity accidents in you in the United States research labs, which our witnesses have talked about. The Obama White House implemented the second gain of function moratorium on influenza plus MERS and SARS because of the potential risk of lab accidents and inherent gain of function da- danger. But gain of function still still continued at the University of North Carolina. Research later that we shared with Dr. Xi, the bat lady. Nevertheless, clearly the U.S. government and Dr. Fauci knew that the viral gain-of-function research was very concerning. And almost counterintuitively, while Dr. Fauci encouraged United States scientists to pause their GOF studies, Dr. Fauci offshored the pause research to China, not once but twice, In 2012, Dr. Fauci gave a new grant to Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance for Influenza Research in China. And then again in 2014, Dr. Fauci gave another grant to Daszak for SARS research in China. Daszak partnered with who? The Wuhan Institute of Virology. In late 2017, NIH announced a lift on the gain-of-function moratorium, what became known as the P3CO framework, which we referred to, referred to, apparently without consultation from a Senate-confirmed State Department head or national security leadership. Also significant, there was no OSTP director in place and only an acting HHS secretary at the helm. So what was the result of this? NIH essentially lifts the moratorium on their own by slipping it in between administrations and self-policing. Yeah. So uh, as a great philosopher, Dr. Phil would say, how'd that work out for you? Um, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, very key statement here. And it's only 11 seconds long. And today we can't see the research record for Dr. Fauci's offshore projects because the Chinese Communist Party supposedly has Eco's health records and NIH resist sharing theirs. Did you get that? NIH won't share their records with Congress. Got that? All right. Medical doctor and U.S. Senator from Kansas, Roger Marshall, has a question for Dr. Ebright. So I'll get to my question now. Dr. Ebright, could EcoHealth's research in China have led to the COVID-19 pandemic and Dr. Fauci's worst fears that a lab accident in a foreign lab became reality? That's a good question. Let's see what Dr. Ebright says. Yes. 
lapses in U.S. oversight of gain-of-function research of concern may have caused the current pandemic and could cause future pandemics. The U.S. government funded high-risk gain-of-function research and high-risk enhanced potential pandemic pathogens research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2016 to 2019. The research overlapped the pause that was in effect in 2014 to 2017 and met the criteria to be paused but was not paused. The research also overlapped the subsequent policy, the P3CO framework that has been in effect from 2018 to the present and met the criteria for federal risk-benefit review under the P3CO framework but did not undergo federal risk-benefit review under the P3CO framework. There you go. There you go. Now, this uh, this lights a fire under Kansas Senator Roger Marshall. Thank you so much. I have to stop and point out, too, that USAID, who is knee-deep in this type of research, is part of the State Department where they can get the security advice that they should have asked for before they cleared this with P3CO. Certainly, I believe that this virus came from Wuhan, China, and that it is a product of gain-of-function research. This is a bipartisan national security issue, like several of our witnesses have have testified, that this viral gain of function could become, it has become a a weapon of mass destruction, that this model, this is a 3D model, what the COVID virus looks like, and this is the gain of function. This is the, the protein spike, the two units that allows this key to fit into the door perfectly and the, and the, 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 the cleavage site and, and all that. This became a nuclear hand grenade is what happened. Yeah, it did. It did. And people should be held accountable. Um, Roger Marshall with more. Dr. Quay, then Dr. Esfeld, considering the extreme risk of this research and the incredulous obstruction by the NIH, USAID, EcoHealth in China, should Congress immediately pause this dangerous research? Uh, I think that's that's an appropriate step for Congress to take. Okay. Dr. Esfeld? I think it would be somewhat dangerous to attempt to pause gain-of-function research when it's evident that that term is so malleable as to be evaded at will and also could plausibly do damage by applying to science that is not specifically directed at potential pandemic pathogens. Are there any countries that you would say we shouldn't be doing this type of uh, research with? When it comes to identifying pandemic-capable viruses that could kill millions of people and will necessarily be shared with scientists worldwide who will be able to access them, I do not think that we should be doing it. I do not think that China should be doing it. I do not think that anyone should be doing it because it is expected to kill a 100 times as many people as it might save, even if we could perfectly prevent an identified natural virus from spilling over. I mean, I hope this is getting through to y'all because Fauci's too far gone. Let's not get through to him. Now, Josh Hawley, of all people, Josh Hawley of Missouri, he comes in with a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses for being here. Uh, Dr. Corey, if I could start with you, you said in your your written testimony 
that the genome of COVID has some of the hallmarks of, of gain-of-function research, and in particular, three genomic regions you say have the signature of synthetic biology. One region has features of the two types of forbidden gain-of-function research that are associated with bioweapons development. And you said in your opening remarks that you believe COVID-19 was the product of, of gain-of-function research and was from a lab leak from uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. My question, I guess, is do you think that China engaged in a cover-up to prevent the world from knowing the true origins of this virus and the lab leak? Well, how about that? What's the answer? I think there's abundant evidence that they have not shared all the information they had at the time. They continue to not share information. I could give you a laundry list of 20, 20 things that they've done, starting with a a website with 21,000 viruses on September 12th, 2 a.m. Someone was in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It hasn't been available to virologists for, for a decade. It was taken offline. It's not been returned. We've asked uh, to see it. No one that I know of has ever seen it. It goes on from there. Well, it's, uh, it's looking pretty sketchy. Josh Hawley and Dr. Quay. Question and answer about the potential of lethality. Are you concerned with the continuation and expansion of Chinese gain-of-function research? Well, I think I testified here that they, that on, in December 2019, they were doing synthetic biology on a cloning vector of the Nipah virus, which is 60% lethal. We just experienced a 1% lethal virus. Uh, my estimates would be that that could set us back a millennium. Um, the, the Black Plague was a 20% lethal event, and it was 250 years for civilization to return. That, uh, that sounds concerning to me. Again, I'm, I'm doing this as a public service for you. We can sit here and talk about politics, and I'll be talking about politics a lot on the next edition of the Doc Washburn Show, but I just I don't want you to ever say, why didn't you tell us? I, I need to share this with you. Josh Hawley, U.S. Senator, Missouri. Question and answer uh, with Quay again, uh, Dr. Quay, about the lethality. Let me ask you this. How safe were the testing conditions at Wuhan, to your knowledge? Well, I think that a, a lot of the Western virologists actually use that, the findings of that as a way to, to get around saying it was okay at the beginning. All of the work that I've described as being done at what's called BLSA 2-3 level, which is commonly spoken of as a, as a, the dentist, a dentist laboratory level of, of biosafety. So maybe a little higher than that, but it, that's not a bad euphemism. You said, uh, I think in your testimony, this is the most dangerous research that that you have ever encountered. Um, What makes this particular research so dangerous? If you're doing experiments with a pathogen that is 60% lethal but is not airborne, and you make it airborne in the laboratory, and someone walks out with it. NEPA has a 21-day incubation period. It's perfect for for widespread uh, without being detected. Uh, We couldn't afford 60%. We can't afford 10% lethality. Yeah. Um, 60% lethality. If that thing gets out, it sets us back. And by us, I don't just mean the USA, but the world. It sets us back a 1,000 years. Um, Josh Hawley, question and answer Dr. Ebright. Um, Dr. Ebright, let me uh, ask you about the merits of, of uh, gain-of-function research because I was struck by something you said in your written testimony. You said gain-of-function research has no civilian practical applications. Um, from a research perspective, then, what... Why do it? I mean, what's the what's the value, the real value of gain-of-function research? Not a matter of value, but incentives, particularly incentives within the academic research ecosystem. 
gain-of-function research of concern is fast and easy, much faster and much easier than vaccine or drug development. And gain-of-function research is publishable, and gain-of-function research is fundable. With those four incentives in place, fast, easy, fundable, and publishable, uh, the research will be performed. What is... Uh, eliminate any one of those incentives, and it will not be. Because people can make money and uh, get publicity. Okay, Holly wants to ask uh, Dr. Ebride some more. So, thinking about China for a second, what, what's China's interest in gain-of-function research? They have witnessed the United States leading the way with gain-of-function research. Most gain-of-function research of concern performed to date has been performed either in the U.S. with U.S. funding or overseas with U.S. funding. Uh, China has wished to be part of that and has participated in gain-of-function research of concern in China with U.S. funding and has also supported gain-of-function research of concern uh, in China entirely through Chinese programs. Good grief. All right, again, Josh Hawley um, talking to Ebright about, well, let me just let him say it. So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, gain-of-function research and bioweapons, what, what, what's, the, what's the connection there? I mean, what role does gain-of-function research play? As I mentioned, there are no civilian practical applications. There are immense bioweapons practical applications. Uh, as you've heard from Dr. Esfel, the potential pandemic pathogens that can emerge from such studies are potential weapons of mass destruction inexpensive, accessible, easily distributed weapons of mass disruption. But again, from uh, earlier testimony, this is not even on the radar screen of people and entities that are making all this stuff available to anybody. Anybody. Okay. Senator Josh Hawley asking Dr. Ebright about Fauci's lies. Let me ask you about some of the things that you have commented on with regard to what NIH and Dr. Fauci have said, and frankly, the lies they've been caught in regarding the coronavirus. I want to highlight two of them. In response to a congressional inquiry from October of 2021, just last year, the NIH attempted to walk back assertions by NIH Director Collins and Fauci that NIH had not funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. You commented at the time saying, and I'm going to quote you now, NIH specifically Collins, Fauci, and Tabak lied to Congress, lied to the press, and lied to the public knowingly, willfully, brazenly. On May the 11th, Dr. Fauci said the NIH and NAIAD categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You commented on that, saying the documents make it clear that assertions by the NIH director, Francis Collins, and Fauci that the NIH did not support gain-of-function research are untruthful. So just expand on that, if you would. I mean, what are the implications of Dr. Fauci's continued blatant dishonesty regarding NIH's funding of gain-of-function research in Wuhan? I stand by my statement. The statements made on repeated occasions to the public, to the press, and to policymakers uh, by the NIAID director, uh, Dr. Fauci, have been untruthful. I do not understand why those statements are being made because they are demonstrably false. Oh, my goodness. Demonstrably false. Well, he's a liar. That's why the statements are being made. 
Josh Hawley with more questions for Dr. E. Bright about Fauci's lies. Can I ask you just about in my, in my few remaining seconds here, let me ask you about an effort to, to shut down any kind of questioning of the origins of, of COVID. On February 19th, 2020, a group of virologists and others published the famous letter, infamous letter in The Lancet, which said, among other things, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. And of course, we later found out that The Lancet letter had been organized by Peter Daszak, uh, president of Eco Health Alliance, which we've discussed today, operated a lab in Wuhan with a $600,000 five-year annual grant of taxpayer dollars from Fauci's and AID to study bat coronaviruses. That letter conveniently concluded by stating, we declare no competing interests. Many people designate this letter as the first effort to, to quash any kind of debate about the origins of COVID-19. Do you think... Do you think that labeling the lab leak theory as a conspiracy theory so early on had the effect of slowing down investigations into the origins of the virus? Oh, yeah. It certainly had that effect. The uh, Lancet letter that you described was only one of two efforts to impose the false narrative that science shows SARS-CoV-2 entered humans through natural spillover, and that that is the consensus view of scientists. One of the efforts was the Lancet letter you discussed. The other effort uh, was uh, coordinated and orchestrated through the National Institutes of Health, through the NIAID director, uh, Dr. Fauci, and the NIH director, Dr. Collins, and resulted in the publication of uh, an opinion article entitled Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2, making the case, again, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 could not have been uh, a product of uh, research-related spillover. Oh, good grief. Um, at this point, Rand Paul jumps in. Had there not been a pandemic, I think there would still be a need for this hearing. This discussion, Dr. Ebright had gotten this started back as early as 2003, 2004. Others have commented on the, the danger of being able to manipulate influenza viruses to be used as either weapons or by accidental release. But I think given that there was this pandemic, that a million Americans died, you know, I lost friends. I have good friends to, to the pandemic. I think we should be curious. I, I just am uh, perplexed by the lack of curiosity on some as to know, are there any precautions we can take? Are there any kind of government oversight that we could do to try to prevent this from happening? Now, some will say, well, we can't prove it came from a lab. That's in all possibility true that we can't prove it, but there are arguments to be made and, and examination of facts to give us an idea of whether it might have come from a lab. And even if we didn't, I think that this could have come from a person in a lab handling a virus, if it was a virus out of nature, and we've discussed that as well. But I do think that we have to get to the truth of the matter of whether or not dangerous research was going on that should have been reviewable. We had a pause of gain-of-function research. But then we had research occurring during the pause that should have gone to this committee, this P3CO committee, and didn't get to the committee. And uh, I think Dr. Ebright's described it well. 
he says that in Wuhan in 2016, 2018 period, they were constructing novel chimeric SARS-related coronaviruses that combined the spike gene of bat SARS coronavirus with the rest of the genetic information of a SARS-1-related virus, one that was already known to have lethality, and they found that it could efficiently infect human airway cells and exhibited up to a 10,000-fold increase in viral growth. But then when we've asked before, is this gain of function, we get sort of arguments and protestations that this isn't gain of function, as if this is no big deal and the experts looked at this. But as we look farther into this, we find that the experts never looked at this, that it's sort of a select-in kind of program to this committee. It doesn't go looking for dangerous research. It looks at it if you come to them and say, hey, I think I've got gain-of-function research. Do you all want to look at my research? And so this opting-in aspect of this. But I think it's important that we get to the truth. You know, was there research going on in Wuhan that was dangerous? Was it funded by the NIH? And should it have gone through this committee process? I think, by the definition that they have given us, you know, gain of function, I think, I agree with Dr. S. Felt, could be better defined, and particularly if we're going to have oversight on this, we're going to have to figure out what our oversight is going to be. So by all means, moving forward, we need to ask and include the scientists to get a precise definition of what we're talking about if we want to have more oversight. But we have to look back before we can look forward, not so much to assign blame, but to figure out is it really necessary? Do we need to be having hearings on this? Should we have follow-up hearings? Should we have legislation? And if a million people died and there's a chance this came from a lab, I think without question we should. Both sides of the aisle should be looking at this. So I guess my question, I think it's pretty clear, but I'd like to go uh, through everybody, even though Dr. Ebright has said this was gain of function, to each of the three witnesses, was the research where you take the backbone of an, a SARS-1 virus that has known lethality and you mix it together with an unknown uh, bat virus S protein uh, genes to create a new virus was this gain of function according to the NIH definition and should it have been reviewed and discussed by this committee that was supposed to prevent dangerous research from going on we'll start with Dr. Ebright um, it's uh, about to get real here Dr. Ebright's damning response so as you mentioned uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology constructed novel chimeric SARS-related coronaviruses that combined the spike gene of one coronavirus with the genetic information of another. They showed that the resulting viruses efficiently infected human airway cells and efficiently replicated in human airway cells. And they showed that the resulting viruses exhibited up to 10,000-fold enhancement of viral growth in lungs and up to four-fold enhancement of lethality in mice engineered to display human receptors on airway cells. Based on those facts, and they are indeed facts, uh, the research was gain-of-function research of concern subject to the pause and was uh, enhanced potential pandemic pathogen research subject to the P3CO framework. Nevertheless, due to the failure of the NIH to forward the uh, proposals for review, the work was not paused and there was no P3CO review. Man. Okay. Dr. Quay's damning response. Dr. Quay. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology is unique in the entire world. Before 2019, 65% of all publications on coronaviruses came from that single institution. They're unique for two reasons. For almost a decade, they were going into bat caves throughout China and actually back into Africa as well. Uh, 
20 visits a year uh, and bringing these samples back to the laboratory. So on the one hand, they had the largest collection of raw material backbones from nature to then do gain-of-function research on. They trained in Galveston, Texas and in, in North Carolina and were doing experiments, published experiments between 2015 and 2019. I be, believe it's the confluence of those two activities, gain of opportunity, bringing things back from bat caves and gain-of-function research uh, that led to the pandemic. Wow. Um, is anybody going to be held accountable? I mean, they're just dropping bombs here. They're putting it all out there. Like Dr. Roger Marshall, Senator Roger Marshall, also from Kansas. I hope America's listening. America's not listening because they don't know about this. The media did not tell them about this. I'm trying to do my own little part. Dr. Estelle. On the list of experiments that you would need to perform in order to learn whether a novel virus could potentially cause a pandemic, you would need to test growth in human primary cells, such as human airway epithelial cells, and you would need to test transmission in a suitable animal model. So the question is, if they were not intending to determine whether a novel recombinant event between these coronaviruses could lead to something that might kill millions of people, then why were they doing it? If there was no chance that it would come up with a result that looked like it was more dangerous, what's the point? What's the scientific hypothesis? So, again, whatever you call it, what they were trying to do was identify a biological agent that has a good chance of being able to kill millions of people if released. And they shared the description of what they did, and they shared the genome sequence because they thought that this would make us safer because they think that knowing which viruses in nature might cause pandemics makes us safer. They did not consider the security risks. And it's worth noting that both USAID and NIH funded those particular coronavirus chimera studies. USAID, to my understanding, has since disavowed those chimeric recombination studies and announced that they will only focus on finding natural pandemic-capable viruses, which is at least a step in the right direction. But again, I would call that gain-of-function. Another reasonable scientist would say, no, that's not gain-of-function because the term is so ill-defined. Ebright keeps on coming up and saying the term is so ill-defined, but everybody else seems to kind of agree on the same definition for it but um but again i mean all three of them all three of them gave jarring alarming answers about how the wu flu how the china virus started even beyond the term though would it be qualified as dangerous research that actually should have gone before this committee the p3co committee and been reviewed Well, here is where you come back to the problem of thinking this is a health and safety issue rather than a national security issue. The question is, why are we trying to identify readily accessible agents that could plausibly be used to kill millions and will, as soon as identified, fall into the hands of all of our adversaries, as well as perhaps individual terrorists who would just want to use them? The fundamental principle behind even wanting to do these experiments in the first place is, I think, a fundamental threat to not just national security, but international security. It's just hard to see why you would ever want to do this when you think about the misuse potential. And I haven't seen anyone else publish a numerical model of that. 
Why would you want to do it? I mean, I mean, I'll say this. Um, there are elites in this world who believe that uh, 8 billion people is way, way too many people and that the world would be a lot better off with about uh, about 400 million. And they don't care how we get there and how quickly we get there. They believe uh, they're, they're, they're Malthusians. They believe in the population explosion um, hoax debunked by a guy named uh, Thomas Robert Malthus from a couple of hundred years ago. He laid it all out in his uh, writings in uh, 1798, an essay on the principle of population. So um, I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, Rand Paul. Rand Paul has a question uh, regarding the uh, the origin of the Wu flu. People have said, well, you know, this, you know, this, the closest relative that we found is only 96% identical to COVID-19. This couldn't have come from the lab. They've also mistakenly accused those who say it came from the lab of saying, oh, it came from this particular variant. And I think what people who are saying that this could have come from a lab are saying that there could also be possibly other viruses that are closer that were manipulated or that the one that is 96% analogous to COVID-19 could have gone through serial cell culture and become COVID-19. I guess I'd like to ask each three of you whether or not the, the variant that is uh, 96% uh, analogous to COVID-19, could it through serial passage be transformed to COVID-19? Is it possible? Is it so far away that you can't do it experimentally? Could you do it through gene splicing? Could it be done? Or is it something that argues that this couldn't have come from the lab? We'll start with Dr. Ebright. Oh, boy. All right, here is uh, Dr. Ebright's answer. The closest relatives are more on the order of 97% identical to SARS-CoV-2 in genome than 96%. Uh, viruses with that level of genetic difference cannot rapidly in the time scale of weeks or months move from their state into being a proximal progenitor of SARS-CoV-2. However, in the laboratory, those viruses can be combined at will. They can be combined in particular using a method that would be described as uh, constructing a consensus genome virus. To construct a consensus genome virus, one takes the sequences of several related viruses, identifies the most commonly observed nucleotides at each position in these sequences, and then synthesizes the nucleic acid corresponding to the average, if you will, the consensus genome uh, for the group of viruses. This has been done successfully in coronaviruses. This has been done and published a decade ago in coronaviruses. 
uh, that kind of research could have been done using viruses that are on the order of 96 to 97% identical in their genome sequences to SARS-CoV-2, and with two or three or more such viruses, genome sequences, one could develop a consensus. And that's just one of a series of potential routes by which uh, one of the known viruses with 96 to 97% identity could, through a laboratory in a relatively short time, be transformed into a uh, progenitor of SARS-CoV-2. Which is insane. I mean, I hate to be a dead horse, but it's insane. Okay, here's Dr. Quay's response. Dr. Quay, uh, the three sets of viruses that are closest to SARS-2 are one from southern China, RITG-13, and a series of banal from northern Laos. And uh, as indicated, they're probably 1,200 letters different in the whole 30,000-letter alphabet. In nature, that takes approximately 40 years, so the... The most common ancestor is about 40 years ago, uh, but most of that can be done in a couple of days in a laboratory. However, I don't believe we currently have the, the starting material, the backbone uh, on which SARS-2 is, was found. I think it's one of the other 21,000 viruses in the database that was taken down at 2 a.m. September 12th, 2019. So a great deal of information was destroyed by the Chinese. It was taken offline, not available. I don't know if it was destroyed. Right. That is an important distinction. It was taken offline, unavailable. I don't know if it was destroyed. Dr. Esfeld's response. Dr. Esfeld, if a Ph.D. student proposed to take a 30,000 base pair viral genome and attempt to passage it in the laboratory to acquire a 1,000 or so mutations, I would say that is not a Ph.D. project. Go do something else. So I concur with Dr. Ebright that the only way that you could get something so divergent would be to computationally design it and synthesize it, which could certainly have been done from what data set and, again, why. Why would you do such a thing unless you want to know what the ancestral virus was like and whether the ancestral virus was dangerous? There are basic science reasons why you might want to just know where they all came from. But at the end of the day, the reason why this research is of interest to us is the risk of pandemics. And so, again, why would you run the tests to determine whether something was pandemic capable? And they certainly ran those on all of the other coronaviruses that they found and thought might be dangerous. So, on the other hand, they never published anything like that, right? And presumably they would have. They published their data on the other stuff. So, again, this is why I, I don't think we have enough information to know, but it was definitely not passaged in a lab from something that was 97%. Wow. And, and the reason that sounds like it cut off there where you're seeing 97% is because uh, Rand Paul jumps in with a follow-up question. I agree. And one of the things that tips us off that they may have been trying was in 2018, they asked for money from DARPA. And in that money, they wanted to insert the furin cleavage site, which makes it highly infectious in humans. And they, so if they had the idea of that, they're asking for money, they must have thought, wow, we can do this. And this is going to be a great experiment. Even our government finally at that point decided not to fund that. But what they're asking for, and this is why I think there was a holy cow moment when all of a sudden these scientists see the sequence of of COVID-19, they're going, oh my goodness, didn't they ask us in 2018 to put that furin cleavage site in? And lo and behold, it's there. 
So what I'd like to ask, and I'm going to finish with this, and then we'll have another round if some people would like to ask some other questions, is um, Dr. Quay, could you sort of lay out in as simple a fashion as possible two or three items about the virus that makes you think it came from, and, and not only anybody knows with 100% whether this came from a lab or whether it came from animals, but there is some compelling evidence that suggests it could have come from the lab. And, you know, even if it was a 10% chance it came from a lab, it's another reason for us to be concerned about uh, having oversight on this kind of research. But you, can you give me two or three things that this virus has that make you think it's lab versus uh, some of the evidence for MERS and SARS? that was that it came from animals all right i think we got uh dr quay's response here yeah there are three regions the receptor binding domain the furin cleavage site and this protein eight from the left called orf eight with respect to the re- with receptor binding domain if you look at what happened with sars one we have the virus sequence when it first le- was in civet cats in the markets jumped into a few humans we have the virus sequence then it started infecting more and then we have the virus sequence when it became when a human to human passage could occur and an epidemic occurred and so you can see the progression of mutations as the virus adapted from being in civet cats and then being in humans the first jump into humans it had only 15 percent of the mutations it needed to support an epidemic. Okay, let's flip to SARS-CoV-2. When you look at at, at the virus uh, that first entered the human population, out of the out of all of the uh, changes in the receptor binding domain, there are 200 amino acids, 4,000 possible changes. There were only 17 mutations that could make it a better virus. Its receptor binding optimization was 99.5%. And in fact, one of the 17 ended up being the Delta variant. So that kind of optimization juxtaposed by the fact that there were no patients in Wuhan, 36,000 bloodback specimens tested for antibodies in 2019. Not a single patient was infected. Let's go back to SARS-1. 20% of all people in the markets were infected while the virus was practicing to set up an epidemic, 1% of the general population. So we would have expected 360 in the general population of Wuhan. We had zero. Furin cleavage site has obviously never occurred in this related viruses, cervical viruses that split from their, their cousins, the MERS viruses, around the time of William crossing the channel, 10,060. That was when the cervical viruses came. So there's never been a furin cleavage site, and the genetic sequence of it uses a code that's never been used, the CGG, CGG dimer, as it's called, which is, has never been used before. Finally, orphate, this protein that goes into the bloodstream and suppresses interferon response so you're asymptomatic and suppresses AHC uh, antigen presentation so you can't make good antibodies. This was the, the subject of two master's theses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I have found no Western scientists that worked on this location in the genome before 2019. The protein is not present in MERS. It has a 5% homology in SARS-1. Between SARS-1 and SARS-2, there's a protein there, but it's only 5% homologous. But this Master thesis, the first one optimized its function in suppressing interferon, symptoms of, of fever and chills, and suppressed its antigen presentation. The second one was making synthetic biology tools so you could move it around inside genomes. Okay, now, if you're like me, you might have had uh, a difficult time following that. Uh, fortunately, Rand Paul, understanding this, breaks it all down for us. So to reiterate, there's been no animals found that have COVID-19. <laughs> 
when they did find that animals had the first SARS and MERS, they found it out within months. When they tested the animals in question, 90% of the animals had the SARS virus. So we haven't found any animals yet with COVID-19. And then most viruses that come from animals first aren't very infectious at first, and they infect a few humans. So you don't have a pandemic that does this. It smolders and then does this. During the smoldering phase, you find background antibodies that people have had it, even if they don't know they had it. So when they tested the background of people who were working with the animals that had COVID, um, they found 20% of them had antibodies to having had SARS. SARS-1, yes, correct. But then if we test the people in the marketplace, we're not finding that. If we look at the people in the Wuhan marketplace, uh, we're not finding significant numbers that were positive and finding almost nobody positive from the previous year that had been ill. No, it's zero out of 36,000. Wow. Good grief. All right. Um, Ron Johnson has a question for Dr. Dr. Quay, who has a bombshell answer. We keep on getting them. Dr. Quay, how did we find out about the Nipah virus? Uh, so um, in December uh, 2019, five patients at a Wuhan hospital had their specimens and a bronchial lavage where they stick a, a throat and get it lost to the one Institute of Virology for sequencing. The process is to amplify with a PCR process. You make a lot of copies of what's in the specimen, and you usually inadvertently make copies of what's going on in the laboratory. So um, the one Institute of Virology probably regrets, but they put a 55 million letter database of the background information up in the gene bank, which is the NIH's uh, database there, of everything going on. We found 20 strange things in these patient specimens, honeysuckle genes, uh, horse viruses. 19 of the things we found were in publications from the laboratory over the previous two years. So this clearly was a signal of what was going on in the lab around there. The one thing they didn't publish on was this uh, cloning vectors of the Nipah virus. So it's in the patient specimens because it was in the laboratory at the time, not in the patients, but it, it, and they have never published on that. Uh, you get that? It sounds like they uh, had a lot of spillover, made a lot of mistakes in that lab. All this stuff is in the patient specimens, but was not in the patients, but was in the lab. This Wuhan Institute of Virology that Fauci keeps on sending millions to, that that lab. Okay, another bombshell from Dr. Quay. How do we know it's 60% lethal? Oh, the Nipah virus has has had epidemics, sporadic epidemics in in the the, the belt around Africa and India, uh, Bangladesh, and it's between sixty and eighty percent lethal in the pockets where it comes out. It's not very transmissible like Ebola, so it it kills a hundred or two hundred people and then burns out. But if they made it airborne, it would be different. Okay, so so this is a virus that occurs in nature, but you just d- detected it in. This database, okay. I, I, I detected cloning vectors with it, so they're manipulating it, which is n- not allowed by biological treaties. Um, that's very deadly. They're, they're doing something that's not allowed by biological treaties, and it's got a, it's 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 deadly. Sixty to eighty percent, I think, is what he said, right? I I, I am. I got that right, right? Okay, uh, there's follow-up time. Senator Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, puts Dr. Quay's bombshell into perspective. 
So and that's a pretty scary scenario right there that uh, the Wuhan lab that might have been the originator of the coronavirus is fooling around with something far more deadly. Oh, yeah. Yes. And they're obviously mums the word. Far more deadly. Far more deadly. And mums the word. Uh, Ron Johnson, question for Dr. Ebright. Dr. Ebright, I'm a little confused. You talked about, well, if we were doing gain of function on the current coronavirus, that'd be okay. But that's not the indication I'm getting from Dr. Esfeld here. I think what really concerns me is, and I'm not saying that you're saying this justification, you're saying the, the reality situation is we've got research centers, we've got scientists that are doing this gain-of-function research, I mean, very dangerous gain-of-function research, for two completely unnecessary reasons, because it's fundable and it's publishable. So you got a little greed involved, and you have hubris. Is that what you're saying? Oh, man. Here we go. Here we go. The research is performed because it's fast, easy, fundable, and publishable. In the academic research ecosystem, those are determinants of what research gets pursued. Yep. He's uh, he's not going to sugarcoat it for you. All right. Um, Senator Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, and Dr. Ebright, uh, back and forth on accountability. So I, I view that as a very corrupt research ecosystem. I mean, if, if, that's, if that is what is driving research and very dangerous research, it's so you can get a funding grant just to do something, I guess, for grins, and then you can publish it and get the academic kudos for it. Now, I'm sorry, I just find that sick. I would not use the term corrupt. I would not see any real difference between this than the activity of a hedge fund or the activity of a bank or a broker. The key point is because of these incentives, self-regulation from within the community is insufficient. The scientific research community will follow the incentives. It will never effectively self-regulate on these issues. For this reason, we have regulations with force of law for vertebrate animals research and for human subjects research. We need regulations with force of law for gain-of-function research. Sure do. Again, uh, he's he's not going to sugarcoat it. He's like, they're not going to regulate themselves, sir. Uh, that's that's not going to happen. So you're going to have to regulate them. Ron Johnson flabbergasted. I think the difference if it's a bank or hedge fund, I mean, they're, they're doing things for an economic incentive to produce something, you know, to fund a manufacturing site or fund some kind of business. Again, th- this is research that has, again, I, I'm not hearing the benefit of this research. I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm seeing the risk. I'm seeing the danger. I'm not seeing the benefit other than what you're saying for the researcher itself to just get money to do something that's dangerous and have, the, again, the academic kudos for being published. Maybe you don't like the word corrupt. It's, it's completely useless. It has no benefit to society. It just has risk. It just has danger. Dr. Esfeld, I mean, do you disagree with that assessment? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Here we go. Dr. Esfeld again reiterates why this is bad. 
I think that all institutions follow their incentives. And I think that that set of incentives, fast, easy, fundable, and publishable, insofar as fundable and publishable are ways of curing heart disease and cancer and forestalling aging, those are all certainly fundable and publishable, perhaps not as fundable as we would like. Certainly research into defenses against the next pandemic is right now somewhat fundable. I wish it could be more fundable, but, but, but it's publishable. So, right, it depends on what you're on talking about. Fundable and publishable have a beneficial reason. What I'm, what I'm hearing from the three of you witnesses, there's just not a benefit to this. There is, so one, one clarification. You mentioned on endemic human viruses like SARS-2, why do this? Well, if you want to predict the next variant that is going to arise anyway within a couple of months, one that already exists, then that's why researchers do things like deep mutational scanning on of the spike protein to look and see which ones of them might have a bit of an edge in terms of maintaining infection while evading immunity a little bit and is likely to be the next variant. That then lets us design the next vaccine against the variant and guess correctly. We have to do this with flu every year. Flu vaccines are terrible usually because we often guess wrong. So that kind of research can help improve our guess as to what is correct. But as soon as you make a change that would not occur in nature... Then it becomes dangerous because that is something that a more pathogenic mutation could be inserted. And that becomes a problem, and there's no justification for doing that because nature's not going to come up with it. But they do it, and Fauci just rejects oversight. Okay, Dr. Roger Marshall, also a senator from Kansas, jumps in with a question for. Uh, Dr. Ebright, about this EcoHealth Alliance, this third party that Fauci funnels money through to get to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I want to start by going back to a comment that Dr. Esfeld made that USAID paid for gain-of-function research in China. And most people don't realize that because USAID won't give us the records. And we've been trying for over a year to get those records, which is why we're holding up one of their nominees as well. So thank you for pointing that out, Dr. Esfeld. I'm going to go to Dr. Ebright next and talk a little bit more about EcoHealth Alliance, that they're about their record of noncompliance. Uh, they couldn't provide research records to NIH when NIH requested them. They didn't have an adequate agreement with WIV. They don't use the appropriate rate of pay for WIV researchers. There continue to be noncompliance with financial conflicts of interest policies. Dr. Ebright, based upon EcoHealth Alliance's record of noncompliance, should they continue to be eligible to receive federal funds? That's a pretty direct question there. Dr. Ebright. Comes down to EcoHealth Alliance. Their most important aspect of noncompliance was that they were informed by the NIH in terms and conditions on the notice of award for their grant that in the event they encountered viral growth in their engineered coronaviruses that exceeded the growth of the parent coronaviruses by more than a factor of 10, they must immediately inform NIH and immediately stop the research. They did not do this. So that's not merely a financial violation. That is a serious hazard violation and a violation that may be connected to the origins of the current pandemic. With that being said, 
it is inexplicable that they were awarded subsequent federal awards and that they remain eligible to receive federal awards. Money talks. Yeah, it is inexplicable. See, there there are people among us who believe that uh, the government is filled with people who have nothing but altruistic um, motives. But that's not true. So we'll go to uh, Dr. Quay next. You may be familiar with the genomic sequences in NIH's database. I think you spoke about them. That Chinese scientists asked to be removed and how they were uh, from early COVID uh, Wuhan patients. Do you believe there could have been more data in NIH's database submitted by Chinese scientists that could hold the key to the COVID-19 origins? Yeah, this was a really nice piece of work by Jesse Bloom at the University of Washington who found uh, not in the NIH database but on some Amazon web servers uh, the actual sequences of viruses from very early patients that had been put on gene bank and then removed before they were published and made available. And the remarkable thing is, again, going to another piece of good research, the virus that first came out, the first one virus, is three mutations away from what we now know is probably the first virus, but that's a computational method. It's kind of complicated. But anyway, there's a prediction. There are three mutations that have never been seen in humans before the first virus that we have in humans. The specimens Jesse found had some of those. So we know that the Chinese have viral sequences that are ancestral to what we have. And the more of those we get, the more we'll get to the bottom of this. I'll point out that these sequences were from September and October of 2019, two months before any person in the market was sick. So again, the timing of the market spillover doesn't coincide with the genetics of the virus. Oh, boy. All right, so uh, Dr. Marshall wants to follow up here, and indeed he does. Dr. Essel, anything to add to that? No, other than Jesse is certainly one of the foremost experts in this field, and if you want probably some of the best answers that science can give, then I would recommend that you request his input. That's Jesse Bloom, the uh, researcher that the other doctor had just mentioned over at uh, University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Marshall, uh, question and answer with uh, Dr. Quay on uh, EcoHealth Alliance. Thank you. Uh, my last question. For 20 years, NIH sponsored EcoHealth's partnership with scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The Chinese scientists have bragged that their virus sample database is the largest in the world. They took that database offline in September 2019. NIH asked EcoHealth for research records. EcoHealth told them that the records are in the custody of the Chinese government. Is it possible that the database taken offline by the Chinese government was data collected by EcoHealth and belongs to American taxpayers? Dr. Quay. Well, since the work has been funded in part by U.S. taxpayers, then by definition, access to that would be important. And I also think that we don't have to rely on the wounded virology from re- releasing that. I believe within U.S. jurisdiction, there will be copies of that database. It's too valuable not to have in your own possession if you're doing research on it. Yeah, somebody's got it. You can't just say, well, the Chinese took it offline. Somebody's got it. Uh, Senator Marshall, Roger Marshall, Kansas, uh, more back and forth with uh, Dr. Quay. Do you think there's any way we can still get any of that data that's missing? I feel like, you know, somewhere we're going to find the grandfather 
of, of COVID or the a cousin or something here in, in these data banks? Why did they take them down? And what would be the advantage of them taking it down? You think we can ever find what we're missing? Well, I was taken down at 2 a.m. on September 12th, 2019, which is... I mean, I guess everyone works hard, but that's a little suspicious to be doing it at that point in time. I believe it contains closer precursors, and my hypothesis is it contains the one that's 50 mutations or 100 mutations, not 1,200 away, um, and it was too obviously a, a smoking gun. But again, if you're collaborating on that and you're spending 10 years building a database inside the Wounded Virology, you're going to mirror that database in your own facilities, which means that it's got to be an Equal Health Alliance somewhere. That's right. Got to be. You're not just going to let them have the only copy of it. Uh, Dr. Marshall, Senator Marshall and Dr. Marshall, following up with Dr. Esfeld. Dr. Esfeld, anything to add? Just note that I agree with Dr. Ebright's assessment from earlier. To the extent that China is doing this research, it's because it is scientifically sexy and glamorous and is fast, easy, publishable, etc. Chinese scientists have the same incentives as Western scientists in this regard. And I do not think... In fact, it's very clear that this research is not in China's strategic interest. China has no more interest than we do in handing out the blueprints to agents that can kill millions of people, including their people. This is not in the interest of any established powerful nation. And the question is, can we show leadership and persuade them of that? Because as long as we're doing it, we are making it, we are contributing to the fact that this is seen as glamorous research. It gets published in our top-tier journals Many Chinese scientists get bonuses for publishing in our top-tier journals. We are driving these incentives because we persist in seeing this, again, as a health and safety issue rather than a national security issue. So I think it is in our power to change it, and I think this is one issue where our interests are actually aligned with those of China and really, indeed, every other established nation. These are asymmetric tools of mass death. Asymmetric tools of mass death. Yeah, it's it's just remarkable that the mainstream media just ignored all this, just ignored all this. I I don't know if, uh, well, I I just can't think of an excuse. I I just, I can't think of an excuse. All right, uh, Senator Marshall, Kansas, following up Dr. Uh, Ebright. Dr. Ebright, anything we didn't ask you that we should have? Uh, that I don't know, but I just wanted to agree completely with the last remark by Dr. S.L. Asymmetric tools of mass death. Trying to warn you. So, um, at this point, Rand Paul himself um, has kind of a, a, a summation of everything that went on in this very important, very important um, hearing. And so here is a Rand Paul summation. I want to thank everybody for being part of this hearing. I don't see this as the end. I see this as the beginning of trying to understand what caused the pandemic and trying to come up with solutions. Each of your statements, which is longer than your testimony, um, will be available for anybody who's interested. I wanted to point out one thing from Dr. Ebright's testimony, just for those who say, well, lab leaks should be discounted. They don't ever happen. At one point, Dr. Ebright writes, the second, third, fourth, and fifth entries of the SARS virus, this was the first one, 
into human populations occurred as a laboratory accident in Singapore in 2003, a laboratory accident in Taipei in 2003, and two separate laboratory accidents in Beijing in 2004. So for people who say that it's a conspiracy theory that this could have come from the lab, they're discounting our history. The history has had these lab leaks, and so whether or not we'll ever know for 100% certain whether this came from the lab, we have had lab leaks, and we have to realize the potential danger of these pathogens. We didn't get a great deal of time into the answer. We got a little bit into the answer, but each of the uh, scientists we asked today were asked to let us know how we could better supervise or oversee this kind of research. And the interesting thing to me is I think they all worked independently, but they came up with basically very similar solutions. An independent body outside of the funding organizations or those receiving the funding to make the recommendations. Something akin to an independent agency like a nuclear regulatory agency. In fact, I've already been using the analogy when people ask me and say, well, what's this like? And it's, it's essentially we don't let anybody sell centrifuges to Russia or centrifuges to Iran. There are rules on the export of things. And I think uh, Dr. Esfeld in particular has talked about the security aspect of this. What I would really like to come of this, and I mean this sincerely, is I would like to have a bipartisan bill that comes forward for better oversight. Maybe it's not oversight of gain of function, but maybe it includes things that some people consider to be gain of function. Maybe it's more general, of pandemic viruses. There's a lot of ways we can discuss it. But the bottom line is you can't, I don't think the people doing the research are able to adequately and objectively regulate themselves. And I think having a million people die, there should be bipartisan curiosity in this, that we should be able to move forward. So my hope is that your suggestions, that you've taken the time to put in writing, you've taken the time out of your busy careers to come here, that these suggestions will become legislation. If we can get a bipartisan bill to come forward, what I'd like is that our people who help us write the legislation can communicate with the three scientists here. We're willing to hear from a dozen more scientists. Anybody who wants to, I want scientists to be involved in this. But I do think that ultimately the people making the judgment shouldn't be from one small field of science. So some have said, well, none of the three scientists there are virologists. Well, I don't have a problem with virologists being part of this, but I do have a problem with them all being virologists. The same way I have the problem with behavioral science being approved for funding by all behavioral scientists. I think that there need to be people who understand science on this. I think there also need to be people on the committee, as Dr. Esfeld has mentioned, that understand bioterrorism and uh, biosecurity. And I think it should be a mixture. I mean, this is something we can talk to the scientific community. And I don't think an absolute ban is what we want. We want is a better oversight of this. But we can't have something where three projects have been looked at in the last seven years. I mean, that, that means they're not looking. And the fact that they didn't look at what went on in Wuhan, and then some of the folks I asked in committee about this were saying, oh, our scientists looked at it and approved it. Even that's not really true. They didn't look at the research. They just ignored the research. It didn't go before the committee. They haven't been honest. But if we want trust in public health and trust in government and trust in science and trust in research and trust in the NIH and trust in, in the grants that we give our universities, billions of dollars, we need to have transparency and honesty. 
We can't have a committee where the people are cloaked in secret. I mean, what is this? I mean, th- this is completely insane. So I think we've made some progress. I want to move forward, and I, for one, am open to work with any Democrat in the Senate to make this a bipartisan bill and to make it an even-keeled thing where all the voices are heard, that we don't rashly create any legislation that would hamper science, but that we create something that would have oversight that might save lives. I truly think that a million people died in our country, six million people died, and I think it was from a lab link. And I think it's something that we need to have precautions against because if this gets in, and I think it was accidental, by the way, I mean, no, but I think if we don't do anything, what if this gets in the hands of somebody who actually really wants to harm America or the world or just some psychopath? What could happen? So right now we're, we're doing nothing and I've changed no behavior. We've had this pandemic and we have changed not one bit of behavior. So I think it's about time we do get together and that we're all curious and that we don't make this about Republicans and Democrats. We make this about how we as a people come together to try to make this world a better place. Thank you all for appearing. Okay. There you have it. There you have it. I guess there's uh, there's only one more thing to say at this point in the Doc Washington show. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. All right, um, there is a, a Twitter profile. It's uh, called Il Donaldo Trumpo, a guy who wants people to think he's Donald Trump, and he's got some pretty good tweets. It says, now this is the Jesse B. Waters we like. And they got Jesse Waters trying to hold Lindsey Graham accountable for about a minute and it went something like this why they had to raid president trump's home 90 days before an election yeah you know and i love having you on lindsey you know you and i have debated about things and i've seen you pretty spitting mad over ukraine but I, you, you don't seem as mad as you were about this than you've been <laughs> mad about ukraine i don't understand why people aren't lighting their hair on fire I don't understand why people aren't out in the streets. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, let's just see what's in the warrant. I mean, they've been doing this. This is the third election. This is the third election. We know they doctor evidence. We know they plant evidence. We know they hide evidence. We know they lie. We know they leak. I mean, this is not anything new. This has been this has been years they've been doing this. We can't just say, oh, you know, we're waiting for the guy to come out and, and give a statement about what is predicated. I mean, what? These people are out of control, Senator. This country yeah. is at, like, well, we're on the edge of a cliff, man. I'm telling you, this country is at the edge yeah. of a cliff here. Why they- yeah, that's the Jesse Waters we like. Uh, Lindsey Graham didn't have much of a comeback, did he? Now, Sean, Sean, we, we're going to get to the bottom of this, Sean. Just wait and see. Yeah, he can't play Jesse Waters like he plays Sean. Um, remarkable. Remarkable uh, hearing Rand Paul held last week. I, I hope that it was edifying for you. I just, you know, uh, we're, we're a different kind of show. Nobody wanted to talk about it. We talked about it. You've been listening to episode 212 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show 
do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. Brown, that's the way it is. Wednesday, August 10th, 2022.